I, I was thinking about, well, how do you, how do you bring this thing to a close? How do you, oh, thank you so much, Connie. How do you um, bring 10 years to a close in one service? And I realized there's just no way. So I'm not even going to attempt to do that. Um, but then I didn't want to just kind of talk to you and, and just go freestyle. I just felt like, well, we do messages every Sunday. Let's go with the message and, and see how that fits in with, with, with what God is doing in our midst. Um, so I prayed. I prayed. I said, God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say to our community? What do you want me to say to our people? And uh, I kept thinking of ways to, to say goodbye, and they seemed so terminal. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want it to be terminal because I feel like I'm still going to be in the Bay Area. I'm still going to be uh, around, and I, don't, I didn't want to break anything off. And so I looked at the scriptures, and we saw that uh, <clears throat> after Jesus rose from the dead, he went back up to heaven. But before he went back up to heaven, he actually said farewell. He said goodbye. And the way he said it, uh, I liked it a lot better than maybe I would say it. So we're going to go through a passage that... Uh, that essentially says how Jesus would leave his disciples. How, how would he leave if he wanted to leave well? How would he leave? And so Matthew 28 is, uh, is what we're going to read today. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And so we'll go over the passage, and then I'll sprinkle it with kind of GRX stuff so that it'll be very obvious that, that I'm talking to you, but I'm using Scripture and the way that Jesus would say it to you. And so hopefully it'll, it'll just work. All right? So let's go ahead and uh, <clears throat> read the passage and then um, pick out a few points. Um, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 reads this way. <clears throat> then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name <clears throat> of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them <clears throat> to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. <clears throat> Um, so normally there would be just three points, but there's actually five today, so I, I've kind of outdone myself. If you can go ahead and forward it. Um, so today's message is titled Farewell But Not Goodbye. Um, the first two are probably the most important because point two actually kind of, kind of is, the, is the big topic that, that leads into three, four, and five. So um, the way Jesus kind of says it here is that it, he seems to be saying it matters who's in charge. <laughs> It seems to matter, like, who has the final authority. And so we're going to start with that. Um, and then he makes it very clear that with all the authority that he has and all the power that he has, he kind of distills uh, his command into just one thing that he wants to dispense his authority through. Isn't that kind of neat? So if you had all the power in the world and you could wield any kind of authority, well, what would you do? Well, I'd like to know what Jesus would do. According to this passage, if he had all the power in the world, and he does, and he still does today, he would do this one thing. And so I've titled the second point, the one thing we must do, because this is the one thing that Jesus would do. And then he shows us who we do it with, <clears throat> how we do it, and then finally, the incredible blessing that follows those who actually do this one thing. All right? So that's the five things we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to say farewell, but not goodbye, but then kind of do it the way that Jesus would, would, would do it. And uh, there happens to be five, and usually we have three, so... I'm sorry if this is kind of disrupting your world that we normally have three. Um, I love the, the book of Matthew uh, and uh, what, it, what it communicates, what it stands for. Uh, one commentator said it this way in terms of how the Great Commission summarizes everything that, that, that God wanted to say to us in this one little passage. Um, a commentary on, on Matthew, it says, he says, in this famous Great Commission, Jesus declares that his disciples <clears throat> are to make more of what he has made of them. So he's been discipling these guys for three years, and in his parting message, he simply wants to see the same thing happen with them. So the first generation of disciples was that he developed 12 or now 11. Um, he's saying, look, now I want you to go and do the same with your 10, 11, 12. <clears throat> in that sense, um, the commission encapsulates Jesus' purpose for coming to earth and its placement at the conclusion of this gospel indicates Matthew's overall purpose for writing, which is Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth by bringing men and women into a saving relationship with himself. And that's it. I mean, this is, this is all he's trying to do is he's trying to get people to see and have access to God and, and fall in love with God and, and having a relationship with, um, uh, with himself. So that's kind of, kind of where Matthew's going, and he kind of capsulizes it in this, in this little uh, little segment between 18 and 20. All right, so here's the first point I want to try to make this morning. 
Um, <clears throat> it matters who's in charge. It matters who's in charge, all authority. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Um, when, when scripture uses language like all authority in heaven and earth, he's talking about range. So everything, he's in charge of everything. Um, in this passage alone, there's several times he'll say, you know, all authority, all nations, to indicate that he's in charge of everything. And that's really the message he wants to communicate. <clears throat> the part that says the, the earth has uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's also saying that he didn't have that authority before. I mean, he, he did in the, in the human sense, but now he has even more that God has actually given him all authority because of his death and resurrection. So technically that's called the divine passive that's used there has been given to me. <clears throat> and um, the reason this is important that we get this down before we do anything else is that if he doesn't have all authority, that I can't appeal to him for my sins. If he doesn't have all authority, I can't appeal to him for my value. If he doesn't have all authority, I can't appeal to him for anything in my life, really. And so these, these words, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, is what we have to lead with. I mean, for every Christian, if you're going to start a small group, you're going to start a church, if you're going to start a Christ-centered organization, I mean, you really want to begin with, well, where's the authority? Where's the bottom line? Does it end with Joe? Does it end with Sally? Does it end with this brand? Or does it end with Christ? And so uh, I love, I love the fact that when Jesus kind of, um, you know, dispenses his departing words, he leads with, well, you know, who's in charge? Is it going to be you? <clears throat> Is it going to be me? Who's in charge? Um, Michael Wilkins, who's the dean of faculty at Talbot Seminary, said this. <clears throat> During his earthly ministry, he had absolute authority, but his exercise of it was restricted to his incarnate consciousness. In his risen state, he exercises his absolute supremacy throughout all heaven and earth. Um, so I thought that kind of puts it pretty well. That, that here, he's saying, you know what? Jesus has like final authority. He's the guy at the end of the day that if we're not right with him, then we're not right, right? And that's really where uh, 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 Matthew is, is, is making all these statements about what Christ says. <clears throat> Throughout the book of Matthew, uh, there's almost this kind of crescendo effect of leading from this kind of place of, well, I think Jesus has some authority, and then finally, it gets to this point where he actually dies and rises again. It's like, oh my goodness. He's got like all kinds of authority. Uh, in the beginning, people are listening to his teachings and they'll say, my goodness, you teach as one who has authority. Not like the teachers of the law. They're kind of teaching out of their human wisdom, but you teach differently. You teach as if you have final authority. This is at the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Jesus' um, uh, ministry. And then he goes on and people are wondering, is this really the son of God? Is this guy really the son of God? And Jesus will say, well, just so that you know that I am the son of God and I have authority to forgive sins, hey, I'm going to take care of this right now. And so there's this kind of crescendo effect to the point where crowds are kind of getting it. They're thinking, man, this, is, this guy's different. He has a lot of authority and he's different than these human beings. In fact, when he tells the disciples to go out, he gives them authority to drive out demons and heal diseases because he's got the authority to give. And toward the end of his life, when people are challenging him, because they have authority too. And Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. He's, you know, he's impressive. He teaches with authority. And the chief priests and the elders of the law is like, by what authority do you teach? And Jesus says, by the authority that God gave me. And so it's very clear that, that as, as, as Matthew builds up this case, from just when Jesus starts teaching to when he actually rises from the dead, that this is a guy that slowly is, is, is given all kinds of authority. Now, why is that important for us today? Why is that important for you and I to begin with this and spend a little bit of time on this? Because it matters who's in charge. Isn't that right? When I was teaching um, uh, back in Baltimore, uh, I was a, a middle school, junior high history teacher. In those first couple years, I, it was tough. I was like, I knew my material, but man, I had no idea how to discipline kids. And the same kids that I would have, right, would go into other classes, and they would behave so much better. So sometimes I would substitute and, and kind of sit in for the French teacher, right? So after I get done with my first year, second year of teaching, I said, man, I know my stuff, but these kids, I, I, can't, I can't, I don't know how to manage them. But then I would, I would substitute in, in the other classes, like the French teacher, I'd sit in and kind of run a study hall, or I don't know, any, any French. It wasn't like I was teaching French, but it was more like I would be running that study hall. But when I was in that group, 
it was very interesting. It's like the kids were absolutely great. They were perfectly behaved. I think because they had a veteran teacher who was leading them and he had authority. So it does seem to matter who has the final authority. Built into the word authority <clears throat> is the word author. And if you're wondering, well, how do I get that authority in my life so I could overcome addictions? You know, how do I get that authority in my life so that I get over this negative experience that I've had? Because these things have authority, don't they? Let's say you've been kind of in a relationship and that rejection has been really hard. That's, that's got authority. It's like you don't even want to go outside. But what if there was a power greater than that that was more supreme, had stronger authority? Well, then I'd want that, right? So authority is very important. But built into the word authority is the word author. And I find that if you get to know the author of that authority, great things can happen. A little moment, moment ago, <clears throat> I quoted to you the name of Michael Wilkins, who was a dean of faculty at, um, at Talbot Seminary. I went to Talbot Seminary. So I actually had this guy in class. It's a New Testament prof there. And uh, I have to tell you, when I actually had him in class, I mean, he was a good professor, but I can't say he was phenomenal. I think he was okay. But he was a great guy. Then he wrote a commentary. He wrote a commentary on Matthew. And I started to read the commentary, and I'm like, okay, this is a pretty good commentary. I like it. I mean, this guy's a scholar. But the one I found out that it was by Mike Wilkins, I said, wait a minute, I had that guy in class. This guy is, it's like, I know this guy. I read that commentary so much differently than when I would have just read it without knowing him. Because why? Because I knew the author. It had a lot more authority because I knew the author. My challenge to you as we as I think about partying and, and saying farewell, I would not want to leave this place if I couldn't know for sure that, do you know, that, that we knew the author of the authority that is available to us. Not just the fact that there's authority, that's a nebulous code or, or there's this Bible and has authority. No, no, I'm talking about the author of the Bible. That I, I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving this place unless I, I had some sense that that we both knew the author of this authority that comes down and forgives sins. That we both knew the author that comes down and gives us value. And that's where we've got to begin. That this great commission begins with Jesus having that authority. But that's not enough. The question is, is he your final author? Is he your final authority? And so I want to begin with that this morning. Um, <clears throat> A.T. Robertson said this, uh, it, is, it is the maj uh, majestic of all spectacles to see the risen Christ without money or army or state charging this band of 500 men and women with world conquest and bringing them to believe it possible and to undertake it with serious passion and power. So he didn't, he didn't need an army, he didn't need swords, he had the Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of authority that he wielded. Um, anytime I talk about this topic of authority, I, 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 I can't, I, I, I can't, just let it sit without having it affect us personally. I mean, um, you know, when I think of, of, of final authority, when I think of God being God and, and those things that oppose God, I think of idols. I think of addictions. I said, you know, how many people do I know whose addictions have authority over them? I said, I know lots of people like that. I know lots of people who are consumed by alcohol. I know lots of people who are consumed by drugs. I know lots of people who are consumed by approval and needing to be successful. This is, these are authorities. So, so when we say that all authority has been given unto Jesus, I mean, I take that very seriously. I said, really? Okay, that's nice to know. But does this have authority in your life? Does this actually have the final say? Or does your addiction have the final say? Um, in our household, uh, we have a routine with all of our kids. And, and my youngest goes to school at exactly at 8.20. It just works that way. She's got to be in school by like 8.30. So I'll, I'll put her in my car and you know, we'll drop her off. Or sometimes we'll just walk. And uh, we allow her to watch TV from 8 to about 8.15, and then she's got to get ready for school. And by then, she's already ready to go to school. 8.20, we're out the door. Well, in these last couple of mornings, it's like 8.20, 8.21. She's still watching TV. And Helen will say, hey, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, are you okay? I thought we had agreed you'd watch TV until, until 8.20, and then we'd go off to school. And she goes, I know, I know, but this is such a good show. I love Pokemon. It's like, I want to keep watching. It's so good. Can I watch it like 30 seconds more? And Helen will say, hmm, I don't know, uh, Elizabeth. It sounds like it's getting to be an addiction. <laughs> right? she, like she literally said this to, to, to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was like, what? What, what? what did you just say? Addiction? What does that word mean? 
Well, it just means that, that, that when you have an addiction, it may mean it's more important than God. Oh, so no, Mom, I do not want to make TV more important than God. So Elizabeth takes out this little post-it, and she writes the word addicting on it, as best as she can say it. And she posts it on the TV. So I took a picture of it. I said, I said, sweetie, did you just do this? Because yeah, I don't ever want to forget, Dad, that the TV is not more important than God. I was like, wow, did you really write that word on that? Yeah. So I took a picture of it. I wanted to show you that my daughter, all right, her final authority in her life is not TV, that she really believes in Jesus. She believes in God. And every day she's reminded that when she watches TV too long, she's saying, I don't, I'm not going to let this thing be addictive to me. This is an eight-year-old. She understands authority. She understands power. She says, if I let the TV be more important than Jesus, that's not right. Every day I'm going to remind myself that TV, you are not as important as Jesus Christ. Because for her, final authority resides in Christ. And so I want to encourage you today, whatever mnemonic device you have to use, whatever you need to do, to make sure that Jesus is your final authority, that Jesus is your center, Jesus is where you get value, Jesus is where you get identity, Jesus is where you go to have everything that you need that's central in your life, go there. And when you do, man, life is going to be so much, I'm not going to say easier, but just more peaceful. And if an eight-year-old can do it, I think we can do it too. <clears throat> all right, so having all this authority, Jesus says, well, there's one thing we must do. He says this, therefore, go and make disciples. He says, if I have all this power and you have all this power too, yeah, we can go out and walk on water and we can jump off a cliff and hope that angels catch us. And yeah, we can use all of our skills to show up. You can do all those things. But Jesus says, well, actually, it's better if you go out and develop people. All the power that you have, all the authority that you have, all the ways that you could wield all this influence, the best thing to do is to actually put it to use with people. That's why he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Get out of your comfort zone and make disciples. Now, um, at first glance, you might think of this as discipleship, where you have like a group of maybe eight to ten people, and in, you know, over a one-year period, you memorize a hundred verses, and you're hardcore, and nobody messes with you. You don't drink, smoke, or whatever. I mean, you may think that's what it says, but that doesn't say that. It's, it says, therefore, go and make disciples. The word disciple means learner. Now, remember, Judas was a disciple. He wasn't a believer. He was a disciple. He was a learner. So it says, therefore, go and make disciples. If you want to be very clear or more specific, I'd say, therefore, go and make obedient disciples. So leading people to Christ would qualify. Uh, a large group teaching segment on how to be Christ-like would qualify. Being in a small group and, and really being held accountable for the commands of God would qualify. So there's a breadth, there's a range of definitions of the word discipleship. It's not just this hardcore, man, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to memorize all these things and I'm going to fast like crazy. I mean, we think of discipleship as that, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that take people who are very far from God, lead them to Christ. Take those people who have been, who found, who Christ has found and develop them. Put them in small groups, give them opportunities, help them grow, send them on missions. You know, empower them so they're leaders and then deploy them into service. I mean, that's really what discipleship is. It could be that hardcore thing, but it doesn't have to be. It's just a, it's just a wide range of things. Now, what's important here that I never caught before that I, 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 that I see now as I, as I you know, studied for this passage is that the relationship between the discipler, meaning Christ or God, and, and how he challenges people to disciple is, is very important. So it kind of comes out in, in the, uh, the grammar here. Okay, so three times in the, in the, in the book of Matthew, the verb uh, make disciples appears. The first two times is very passive. The third time here is active, right? So here the verb takes on what's called a distinctively transitive sense. Make a disciple, in which the focus is on calling individuals to absolute commitment to the person of Jesus as one sole master and Lord. So that's the key element that we are to go out and develop this relationship with Christ. And as Christ dispenses this command to say, go and make disciples of all nations, that there's got to be a response on the recipient's side. Okay, or to put it another way, the, the grammar here, expressing an action carried from the subject to the object, 
requiring a direct object to complete meaning. So the direct object, which is the disciples, you, there's a response. So it doesn't work if, if Jesus has all this authority, right, on heaven and earth, and, he's, and he charges us, look, go and make disciples. Right now we're the direct object. It doesn't work if we don't respond to that. That's how prominent this, this particular command is. Now, it's the main imperative, it's the main verb in the entire passage. It actually drives the rest. The rest are all participles, and so this is how you make disciples. So the main imperative is, is make disciples. To put it simply, if God has given you influence, if God has given you authority, if God has given you the resources of heaven, while the temptation to glorify yourself is there, what the Word of God is saying, actually develop people. Use it to make an influence on people. And when you do, at the end it says, surely I am with you to the end of the age. Isn't that cool? Don't we all want God to be with us? Don't we want God's presence in us everywhere we go? And Jesus is saying, here's what, one thing you can do to guarantee that. It's to develop people. Put your heart into people. Invest your life in people. Involve in people's lives. And when you do, surely I am with you to the end of the age. I think that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. That if I gain influence, if I gain whatever, whatever in my life, the one thing that I must do is I must make disciples. I must make disciples. Um, in the past 10 years, I've had an amazing privilege to work with men and women who want to be disciples of Christ. Uh, even prior to that, watching other mentors, uh, mentee or, or serve, it's just been amazing. And to this day, sometimes I wonder, like, I get, to, I get paid to do this? This is amazing. I mean, I get paid to be with people I love, talk about their spiritual life. This is quite amazing. And so I think one of the things that will naturally happen is if you start to do this, you spend time with people, is that it'll become so natural because this, you're, you're hardwired for that. You are hardwired to give yourself away. You are hardwired to inspire and encourage others with your life. Over the years, um, there, there have been certain principles that I, I felt like the Lord was giving to me that has really helped me to not only disciple others, but also to be discipled. And there are principles here that when I've actually obeyed them, it's enhanced my relationship with people. But when I actually uh, disobeyed them, it actually has strained my relationship with people. And so I'm just going to throw a few out here. These are all scriptural kind of principles of discipleship. If you're wondering, like, how would I go about, you know, um, loving on other people? How would I go about influence? I, I would say, you know, these three steps would be very helpful. And here's the first. When someone sins, that's the time to say, I love you and not how could you. You ever say how could you when somebody messes up? I mean, as parents, I do it all the time. <laughs> that happens a lot. Here's the basis of it. First Peter 4 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And I've been on both sides of this. I've had people, uh, if, if I messed up, I, you feel so vulnerable, and they say, you know what? This happens. Let's move on. I'll walk with you. Hey, man, you're, I still love you as a, as a brother, friend. Let's keep going. They may have, underneath their breath, thought, how could you? <laughs> That's all right. But they didn't say that to me. They said, no, we're going to walk together. And how many times have we skipped that part and said, you know what, how could you have done this? Man, it's crushing, isn't it? It's just really crushing when that happens. Um, and again, I've been on both sides where something bad happens, and I'm like, man, how could that happen? And I, right then and there, I realized, man, I wish I could have taken those words back. So that's why it's a principle of discipleship. I'm not saying that I obeyed it every time, but it's been extremely helpful that when I would obey it, when I was able to do the first part of that, I was like, wow, that's transformational. And then when I wasn't able to do it, it really strained the relationship. So I'm not saying that, that I've, I've obeyed it every time. I'm simply saying that, man, this is a good principle to uphold. All right, what do you think? Is it doable? You can see why it could change people's lives, right? All right, let's do the second one. Uh, the second one is uh, own your stuff first. Matthew 7, 5. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Um, one of the hardest things for me for a long period of time, if I'm sitting with somebody and it's just, I mean, you're doing all that you can to own your stuff, right? You really are. You're trying to do all you, all you can. You cannot demand that the other person owns their stuff because you're owning your stuff. That's, that's not the point of that. But if you read this, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly if you remove the speck from your brother's eye. The point is that you are to serve other people, right? But it begins with actually you saying, you know what, I've done the same thing. In fact, my sin is actually bigger. Let me tell you about my sin. Let me tell you how much of a struggle this has been in my life. And when you do that, all the walls come down. And the Spirit of God comes in because he senses your humility, right? 
And then all of a sudden, the other person is beginning this, wait a minute, maybe I need to start thinking about my stuff. And it's not manipulative if you just do it with, with honesty. In, in fact, this past weekend, uh, this kind of happened in, in a relationship we have with just longtime friends who, who, who came you know, to visit us out of town. And we were just kind of sharing our stuff. And then subsequently, they started to share their stuff. And it was stuff that we hadn't even heard for over 15 years. It was quite amazing. And it was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy, really? And so when we share our stuff, and you own, I mean genuinely, own your stuff, what ends up happening is that the Spirit of God is released, and then what ends up happening is that people share their stuff, and there's freedom, there's reconciliation. I would say this is, this is a, a really, really important principle of discipleship. Here's the third. Um, live it, don't just talk about it. Um, James 2.17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And uh, I, I love this principle, because I, I think we just kind of analyze things and for, to death about what we should do. <laughs> and at some point, you just have to pull the trigger and say, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Um, that's in relation to vision, dreaming. Uh, one of the dreams I have is to plant 100 churches in the Bay Area and beyond. I was like, well, let's get going on that after my four-month sabbatical. Uh, so that's sabbatical I'm, I'm really going to take seriously. But after that, I'm like, well, how can I participate in this? And I just want to do it. Let's just go. You know, we've planted churches before. How, what would that look like to actually find people who are in this category of, of passion, and people who really are innovative and want to lead churches, well, why can't we find them? All right? So what would that be for you? Is if, if your issue right now is that someone is, is just done you wrong, and you don't, want to, you don't want to confront them, well, what does the scripture say? Matthew 18, 15. If a brother's in sin, go. Talk to them one-on-one and get the facts straight. And it says that if, you, if they don't turn, then you're supposed to bring two or three people with you. And if they still don't turn, you're supposed to bring uh, uh, the church with you. So there are guidelines in talking to people about conflict resolution. There are guidelines about how to do church. There are guidelines about uh, how to teach the Bible. I mean, they're, they're all out there. It's a matter of do we actually do it. So those are three that you know, I just want to share with you in terms of uh, making disciples the one thing we must do. All right, so if I were to summarize the two things I, I, I shared, I'd, I'd say it this way. It matters who the boss is, right? All authority has been given unto me, given unto Jesus. One thing we must do, make disciples. Right? So those are the two things. All right? The next part is very challenging. I, I find extremely challenging. Who we do it with? Who do we make disciples with? And the Bible tells us with all nations. With all nations. Now, this is challenging. Because the temptation is to think, man, look around. Man, do we have all nations represented in this room? I say no. I think we have some nations, but not all nations. So when Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me, heaven and earth, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He's saying it's not good enough to just minister to your own kind. And so over the years, you know, I was very hard on myself on this one. I said, we are not going to have Asian guest speakers. You know, when we do retreats, we are not going to bust out the chopsticks. We're not going to bust out the Chinese food. We're going to eat sandwiches, you know, and we're going to, yes, we're going to suffer through sandwiches. So Saturday night, right, in that first retreat, I remember I said, guys, we are a multi-ethnic church, okay? We're not going to eat noodles on Saturday night because that's the intimate hour. We're all kind of close to each other. We're not going to eat noodles. We're not going to bust out the chopsticks. And they're like, what are we going to eat? <laughs> what are we going to do? I go, we're going to have sandwiches. Togos? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. We're going to have sandwiches. And so I went at it for, really, for a long time. And it was just like, it was tough, but we did it. Um, but over the years, we just said, you know what? It just seems like we relate better to this group and that group. Let's just... Let it go. And we haven't touched that in many, many years. But then I have, I, have to start create, I have to start thinking creatively, do the people in the room, in this room, are you the only one that counts toward this multi-ethnic standard? I mean, really, I mean, if we say, wow, 80, 90% of Yorks is, is Asian, oh, where's that multi-ethnic vision, Dave? I was like, wow, you got me. What am I going to do? There's nothing I can say. But is this the only church? Aren't you the church when you go to work? Aren't you the church when you take your kids to school? So I've kind of broadened my thinking in this way. I mean, it's not like we're against non-Asians. Well, I know we're not. So how could it be that this church, that we all are, we're always made to feel like, man, we're not obeying the Great Commission? I don't know. I disagree with that. I, when I walk into my kid's classroom, this is Elizabeth now, I can't even tell what the majority race is. She has Hispanic friends. 
She has like African-American friends. She has, you know, Chinese friends, uh, non I mean, she's got all kinds of friends in the room. I can't even tell. I was looking at some statistics, right? They say that by 2050 in California that, that there will be no majority race. I mean, this is statistically what they're projecting, that in the state of California, by 2050, that you're not going to be able to tell what the majority race is. So in other words, the people that you hang out with at work counts because you're trying to make disciples of all nations. Now, this is more of a fellowship group. This is like we all know each other. But when you go to work, God has put you in this incredibly strategic place where everybody, you have Indian, you have African-American, you have Latino. I was like, why does that not count? And I just want to encourage us as a community, go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations. Maybe that's what God wants from you. Um, I'm looking at just, you know, the world and, and the fastest growing nations in the world. I mean, China and India are the fastest growing nations in the world right now. In, in, in fact, China is the fastest growing Christian nation in the world right now. So the world is, is out there and they're coming here. Um, I don't know who sent this to me on Facebook, but somebody sent me this prototype of the world person. Have you heard about that? That, that, that in about 50 years, a typical person is going to look a certain way. Guess how he's going to look according to this prototype? They're going to be a mixture of Asian and African American. That this prototype, this typical, the, the most common person in the world is going to have a little bit of like Asian eyes. It's going to have a, a darker, darker complexity, skin complexion. Why is that? Because the world is, is getting bigger and bigger, and we're not the only niche in the world. And so I just want to encourage us that when, when we think of, you know, disciple. To, to make disciples of all nations, don't be discouraged because everyone here is mostly Asian. I said, wait a minute, no, your workplace and where you go to school and, and, and where you can socialize, those are all choices that you have. For us, for me, I couldn't, you know, we told people in that first year, look, I, I'm, I'm thinking you want, you want this to be a Korean church. We don't want to be a Korean church. In fact, there's a Korean church right up the road, 20 minutes up the road in Mountain View. We named the church. So that's a Korean church, go there. And then we named all the Chinese churches, all the home of Christ, one, two, three, four, five, right? Said, those are Chinese churches, go there. We would tell people, we don't want to be Korean, we don't want to be Chinese, go to those other churches, right? This is the first year, six months, then we started. Year seven, year eight, year they didn't go. <laughs> they said, no, we'd rather stay here. I said, but, I didn't say this, but we don't want you here, we want you to go over there, go to your Chinese churches, go to, and we just, we tried so hard to say, we don't want to be an Asian church. But God brought all these people, and we stayed. I said, okay, maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. So, you know, knowing my personality, I said, fine. You know, if we can't get to be like a multi-ethnic church, I'm going to go hire non-Asian people. So we hired, you know, two, six, five white guys, you know. Um, so we went to get Andy Fitzgerald, Rob Schultz, and then, and, you know, I'm talking to people in the conference. I said, man, this guy's a good guy. I, how do I get this guy to come to our church? Yeah, he was African-American, but I really liked him. So now he's chairman of the board. So there's Ali back there. I said, I, I can't get any African-Americans to go to our church, but I can go get Ali. So I went and got Ali. So he's chairing the board. I mean, and, and then, you know, we, God sent us other people, but I could hire certain people, but I can't control who walks through these doors. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's something you can do. You, you, you choose every night to have dinner with somebody, right? Every night or lunch. You can have dinner and lunch with somebody. What I'm suggesting is, well, maybe not pick the person that's of your race. Does that mean that you might not be able to go to a Korean restaurant or a Chinese restaurant? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> try an Afghan restaurant. You know, try a non-Asian restaurant. Because Jesus commands us. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying that time because you love food. Go, go, go do non-Chinese or non-Asian. So who we do it with, we're supposed to do it with all nations. Matthew here returns to the universal theme of chapter 1, where the blessings promised to Abraham and to all people on earth, Genesis 12, 3, are now being fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. So, so Abraham or Abram gets the calling, go, right? And, and, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. It starts out very Jewish, but eventually that Jewish thing turns universal. And I believe for us to be the church that God wants us to be, we got to go from the particular, which is mostly Asian, to the universal and say, wait a minute, if we're going to get to that next level as a church, what can we do? Well, maybe I need to start working and hanging out with non-Asians and really fulfill this command that if the, if, the, if the Son of God of the universe who wields the most incredible power and he has 
unlimited power. And he says, the one thing you must do, the one thing you should do, in fact, the one thing I'm going to do when I have all this power is I'm going to make disciples of all nations. How can you ignore that? <laughs> I mean, this is the person who's got the most influence, most power in the entire planet, right? And he's saying, if I had all these choices, all the combinations and permutations of what I could do, I'm just going to choose this one. I'm going to make disciples of all nations. I mean, that's something we have to pay attention to because this is what Jesus would do. Matthew's theme of universal salvation through Jesus thus climaxes in Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations. So, so your Christian experience, I dare say, will not be fulfilled completely until it's shared with someone of a different race. Hard to hear. Pretty challenging. But it's, it seems like if this is the one thing that Jesus would do if he had all the power in the universe, how do we sit here and say, well, I'll just hang out with people of my own kind? You can't. You can't. And I'd even far say as far as, say as far as this, that, that would be disobedient. That you are not obeying God. You are not living a Christ-like life if all your friends are the same color, if all your friends think like you. That we are not being Christ-like. And so we need to get outside our particular um, ethnicity. Okay, all authority has been given unto Jesus in heaven and earth. Uh, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, well, how do we do that? <clears throat> Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, lots of times when you do church planning, they'll ask, so during Easter, you know, how many decisions were, Christ, decisions were made for Christ? And we'd say, oh, you know, five or ten. And we'd report that to the denomination. And I'm like, well, do I know this five, ten people? Where are they? <laughs> Sometimes I'd like, well, I, I saw five hands, but I'd never see them again. I was like, what happened there? I don't know. I think it was erroneous for us to count decisions rather than baptisms. Because decisions say, well, I had an you know, emotional moment with that story you told, or I had, you know, something hit me that day. That music was amazing, and I decided to accept Christ. But, but that's no guarantee because the Bible says you've got to have fruit. You've got to, like, what's the fruit of that decision? And so over the years, um, I've been more committed to counting baptisms more than decisions for Christ. Why? Because baptism is, you can't, you can't mess with that. You can't fool anybody. I mean, you, when you get baptized, you are going public with your faith. When you get baptized and everyone sees it, it's like, whoa, okay, that person's different. Like, they're not being judgmental and so well, I hope you live it. You know, they're not being judgmental. I think what they're saying is, wow, you are really serious about this, aren't you? And so you can't be serious about Christianity, really. I mean, I know this is going to sound kind of almost heretical. I don't think you can really be serious about Christianity unless you go public with it. I don't think there's such a thing as a hidden Christian. Really? Jesus says, be light of the world, you know, love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples, John 13, 34. Like, that's, you're supposed to go public with this. Where does it say that, you know, I'll just model Christ and never say anything that, you know, I won't even talk about Christianity, I won't go public. That's not in the Bible. So baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, that aspect, if you haven't already gotten baptized as an adult, I want to encourage you to get baptized. Several people have emailed me and said, hey, I know you're leaving May 1st. You know, can you do my baptism? I said, well, after May 1st, I'm pretty much, I turned civilian after today. So I don't know, I can't do baptism. I've got a few weddings that I've, been, I've already kind of committed to. Those are all locked. But after today, I, I won't be able to. So Pastor Casey and Pastor Ali will be doing the baptism. But nonetheless, it's, it's still good. You know, baptism is something that we ought to do. If you haven't done it, I think you ought to go public with it. Baptism is a symbol of conversion, indicating a, a union and new identity with Jesus Messiah. In the act of baptism, the new disciple identifies with Jesus, right? Identifies with Jesus and his or her community of faith. You're saying, I'm baptized and I love this church. You can't separate, separate those two. Oh, it's not this one-on-one -on -one and I'm not in a community. Baptism says, I have my one-on-one -on -one with God, but I'm also in community and it gives public declaration that she or he has become a lifelong adherent to Jesus. And if you don't do that, maybe you're saying that you're not ready, and that's fine. But please don't go out to the world professing your faith, right, privately, and not get baptized. I mean, you need to get baptized. Decisions for Christ aren't as important as baptism for Christ. Uh, we're also told here that it's done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The use of the name is common in Scripture of God's power, and authority. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a proclamation of Jesus' deity. 
That's why when, when we do baptism, we say uh, baptism unto death and newness unto life, right? And we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because there's a power behind that. That we're, we're, we're doing that in the power of Christ because he is God. And what we're saying is that he reigns over me. He has final authority over me. So this whole passage, when it starts out with all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth, it's streamlined through the discipleship, streamlined through the baptism, streamlined through you know, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's why the, that, that first thing, I, I spent a little bit more time on that, is that if Jesus doesn't have the final authority in your life, guess what? There's no power. You have no power in your life. I don't care how charismatic you are, how persuasive you are, how skilled you are, what job you have. You have no power unless the authority that Christ has that you're willing to say, you know what, you're my final authority. And when I get baptized, it's done in the name of the, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And that's why it's done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the second way that we can do baptism, the first way is to, is to get baptized. That's how we do uh, decision, uh, discipleship. The second way is to teaching people uh, to obey everything that Jesus commands. So teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. I, I look at this verse, and, and I ask other people to, to read this verse, and sometimes I think what they read is teaching. Oh, teach. Okay, great. Let's go get some great teaching. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, go get some great teaching and listen to some stuff on the internet. Listen to Tim Keller or John Piper or John Ortberg or, you know, Andy Stanton. Like, let's go, go ahead and listen to some teaching. That's not what it says. It says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So it's taking that teaching that you love so much and, and saying, what did I just learn from that? What was challenging? What was convicting? What was something that I need to incorporate into my life? Oh, I need to be a better listener. Man, tomorrow I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that right now. I'm going to be a better listener. That's teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Oh, man, the way I use my money, it's not, you know, I'm willing to spend 50 bucks on dinner, but I won't even give any of that to the church. Man, there's something wrong with that. I got I to gotta work on that. I can forgive all these people that I love, but I can't forgive all these people that I don't love. Teaching them to obey, that, that's the purpose of the teaching. It's not simply to accumulate knowledge and say, wow, I've got this incredible knowledge of the Bible. You know, I'm the best. You know, look at me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying all the authority that I have on heaven and earth, right? I want you to make disciples of all nations, not just your kind, but all nations, and then baptize these folks. Let, let them go public with it. And once they're baptized, which is the kind of the beginning stages, right, then go like, you know, look at the Bible. Just don't look at it and just don't read it. Actually do what it says. The knowledge of it isn't, is, is good. You need the knowledge in order to obey it, but that's not the end of the line. Like you've got to take the teachings of Christ and actually integrate it, and that's when the real growth really happens. Um, one commentator said this, but the emphasis is not simply on acquiring knowledge. The distinguishing feature is always that disciples are to obey or to conform their lives to the teaching, right? Obedience was the hallmark of Jesus' disciples. There it is. Can't tell you how many people I meet with, whether it's counseling or discipleship, with this part is the part that's missing. I don't even question their knowledge about the Bible a lot of times because it's there. I don't even question their church attendance because it's there. I don't even question like how many times they prayed or done, you know, gone to a worship service or praised. I don't even, we don't even talk about that. But what we will talk about is, well, why won't you meet with that person again? Oh, I'm just not a confirmer. Oh, no, I'm more of a retreater. I, I, I would hurt their feelings. But every time we've met, all you've ever talked about was this person, how you have this and this that you've done. Why aren't you willing to put that into play? Oh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I'm just not there yet. Okay, all right, cool, we're getting somewhere. But you see where this gets, I mean, this is just a, an example. I was at a, um, uh, a breakfast, with, this is when I was back at New Song. We, there were only four pastors at the time, and, and uh, at that place, we, you know, every breakfast that we had, we'd, we'd had the same waitress. And she was awesome. She was a Christian, and, and she'd serve us and always give us, like, great deals and things like that. And um, one day, she just, she just wasn't chirpy like the way she normally is. She just wasn't kind of bubbly. I said, are you okay? She said, well, actually, I'm not okay. I said, oh, what's going on? I said, well, I don't really want to talk to you. I said, well, I mean, we're here. I mean, we're pastors. We can pray for you, you know, stuff like that. She says, all right, well, you know, my friend just kind of, you know, committed suicide. Wow, that's really heavy. But it's something that I, I knew was really bothering my friend. And then when they found my friend, they had a, there was a little note card. It was a little piece of paper in his hand. And the little note said, gossip kills. 
gossip kills. And essentially, the message we got was that somebody was gossiping about this guy, or who, I don't know if it was a guy or a girl, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And he just said, forget it, then. If this is the way people feel about me, I'm just going to kill myself. Um, you know, that seems like a, a, a huge price to pay for someone who gossips or was on the receiving end of gossip. I'm thinking, you know what? I know gossip kills. <laughs> I know gossip will kill this church. I know that, that we've all gossiped. Let's, let's face it, we've all done it. Let's not even go there. We've done that. But to be an obedient Christ follower, I believe is that, you know what? This stops now. What you just shared with me about that person, you're sharing with me because you want me to go to that person with you, right? You want to work this out. That's why you're telling me, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm just sharing. I said, well, okay, you want to vent, right? Uh, no, I'm just sharing. I said, well, then if it's not venting, if it's not assisting you, go talk to this person, you must be gossiping. Call it like what it is and be this obedient Christian. Teach people to obey that because this is going to kill our church. It is going to kill GRX. And if it's not going to benefit anybody, if it's not going to benefit you, it's not going to benefit our church, don't say it. Or just walk away. Just walk away and say, this is not going to benefit the body of Christ. In fact, this is going to divide us. Now, if you want to vent, I'm here for venting. If you want to talk to me so we can talk to that other person, I'm there. But let's teach people to obey the word of God, not just teach people. And I believe this could turn our church around. Not that we have a major thing to turn around, but I just feel like this will put us over the top. I think this will be a tipping point for us, to teaching people how to obey the word of God. And here's what Jesus says. With his authority, right, heaven on earth, right? He says, there's one thing you must do, make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, powerful. Yes, I'm going to go public. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And guess what he says at the end of that? He says, if you do these things, guess what? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you the ultimate blessing, which is my presence. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, Billy Graham once identified loneliness as the disease of the modern era. People who feel like they're alone. And God says, no, you will never be alone. This is the one promise I am with you to the very end of the age. He's simply saying what will enhance that is, man, you give me authority in your life. Right? You make disciples of all nations, not just your kind. And you baptize people in the name of Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you teach people how to obey the word of God. Guess what? I will guarantee my presence. You will never be alone if you are following me and doing these things. And I said, man, what great parting words. I could not leave a place any better than the way Jesus would and said, you know what? If you do these things, right, I'm, gonna, I'm there anyway. I mean, he's there in spirit anyway. Like when we do communion, the presence of God is here. But he's saying, boy, I'm going to guarantee it. If you allow me to have final authority in your life, if, if, you, if you'll start discipling people, leading people to Christ, all kinds of people, and if you will go public with your own faith and encourage others to go public with their faith, and you teach them to obey the word of God, yeah, use your persuasive ability. Use that. Use media. Use, use the letter. What, whatever it needs. Man, teach them to obey. Charge them 50 bucks every time they fall. You know, I, I know one guy that's like, I think they, they give each other 100 bucks every time they, they fall into some sort of sin, right? It's like, wow, that's a serious group. They're teaching them to obey, right? And says, so surely I will be with them to the end of the age. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that cool? I was looking at this. I said, what better way to, to leave your church in the way that Jesus would leave the earth and leave them with this great commission, the presence of Jesus. Jesus promises to be the sustaining presence that assures us that history is not out of control that he is a very present help in times of trouble, and that his power and presence is continually available to us. So here's the challenge. Does he have final authority in your life? Really, do you know the author of that authority? Does he really have final authority on your lifestyle? Can he contradict you? Can he call you out on your language, on your conduct, the way you live, the, the, the kinds of people you're hanging with? Can he? That's what it means to have final authority. And if, if he doesn't, the next several things really are not guaranteed. He's saying, does he have final authority? Does he get to call you out on anything? The things that you think about, the things that you aspire to, things that you've said about people, all those things. Does he have final authority? Not just does he have final authority, does he have final authority in your life? And what about the nations? What do you think of, what do you think of black people? What do, you, what do you think of Muslims? What do you think of people overseas who don't look like you? What do you think of Hispanics? Do you have a stereotype of that? 
Do you have some prejudice that, that's kind of lodged in there you never even questioned? What do you think? Jesus says, I mean, I died for that group. Make disciples of all nations. Where's the nations part? And wouldn't it be glorious if some of these folks got baptized, and as they got baptized, the world could see, wow, you don't have to be, you know, Korean to go to Prayer Mountain. You could actually be, you don't have to be Korean, because Koreans are known for Prayer Mountain, right? It's like you go there, it's like, wow, it's not just Koreans. It's everyone. Wouldn't that be amazing? That, that's coming from this passage. And then not simply say, man, I go to BSF and I know a lot of Word of God. Well, it's great, but that's not impressing anybody. I go to BSF, I know the Word of God, and guess what? I'm forgiving my enemies. I'm spending time with people who are different than me. I'm giving my time to the, to the local you know, homeless shelter. I'm doing it. I'm living it. Man, that, I think the heart of God says, surely I am with you to the end of the age. Surely I am with you to the end of the age. Well, this is uh, uh, the final message that I'll be sharing with you as, a, as your pastor. And I just want to say it's been an incredible honor to, to be with you these 10 years. Some of you I've been with 10 years. Some I've only been with six months, but whatever the range, it's been amazing. And uh, I just think that this passage, um, as Jesus would part the earth with this passage, it was very fitting. I said, you know what, let's do this. Let's part with this because I think the Great Commission is going to stand on itself for eternity. And so hopefully this is something that ministered to you. Uh, I love you guys, and uh, I'm going to keep tabs on you to ask about you, you know, after I leave. And please know, my family will be praying for you. We love you guys, and we're going to miss you a ton. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, it's been an absolute joy and honor serving this congregation. And uh, I just think it's so fitting that as we look at this passage, how Jesus, with all the authority that he had, he chose to disciple others. And that's an incredible challenge for us. Uh, a statement of love, how you care about the world. And so help us not to live in a cocoon or be in an ingrown society, but really be the church that is a, a light upon, upon the hill. Um, we love you, and I pray these words would just sink deeply into people's hearts, that we would be a people that give you final authority, that we would be a people that make disciples of all nations, that baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that you've commanded, and because we want to glorify you. And we want to make sure, God, that you are with us wherever we go because you are a good and faithful God. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.